Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 58 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. In the last show of 2016, Patrick Nylander is our musical guest. We'll listen to some of his Native American flute music, and we'll take a trip down under by way of his magical didgeridoo. This month, we'll hear from Rick Fedick, Dave Seastrom, Jeff Tryon, Jim Eagleman, Tori Bergmeier, poet Carol Marks, and something new we're calling This Old Guitar with Nathan Dillon. We'll also listen to Vera Grubbs as she interviews local artist Sally Baldwin. We'll begin the show by listening to our interview with Patrick Nylander, who will share his Native American flute and didgeridoo music with us. Jim Eagleman shares some information about woodpeckers, and we'll wrap this segment up with some Native American flute music from Patrick Nylander. Uh, This evening, we've been treated to a most remarkable musical event here at the Brown County Hour, and thanks to our guest this evening, Patrick Nylander. And first it was Native Flutes, then it was the didgeridoo, uh, the sound effects. I mean, uh, we've never heard anything like this. Uh, Thank you so much for coming in and bringing this to us. So, Patrick, tell us the story. Uh, 1995, you discovered a flute. Uh, visiting Brown County, went into Mountain Made Music, um, heard a fellow that made flutes playing flutes and bought one, and it started from there. My wife said I would probably, she was upset that I, I, I made a, not upset, I should say, but she was concerned that I made a purchase that I'd probably just tinker with and put down and never pick it up again, but it just kept going and going. So is she happy that you now have, how many flutes did you say, 30 flutes? 30-some. I hate saying that on here. Uh, well, you don't have to admit <laughs> that in public. <laughs> so it would have been better from her perspective if you hadn't pursued it so hard. Then. Probably. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you chose to go ahead and pursue it. Uh, you have a remarkable gift. It was uh, an amazing performance for us. So let's talk more about how you approach your music. I mean, you mentioned that you're not a trained musician at all, that you improvise all of this. I just play what comes into my head. That's as simple as it could be. Other than that, I have no other explanation how it works. Well, talk about the various instruments you brought in this evening. You, you had two different flutes, and you had this remarkable didgeridoo. The Native American flute dates back in North America about 1,200 years. Um, for the most part, all tribes played them. 
Uh, women, for the most part, did not because they were considered a courting flute, and that's how you got your mate, spouse, significant other, however you want to term it. And um, you played it, and since it had a unique sound because it was tuned to you, they weren't tuned to a specific key. You had your own direct sound, and people recognized that. So if you liked the lady, you courted her, and you had played the flute to her, she knew your sound. You played by the dwelling place in some tribes. They put the wedding garment on, come out, and that was your spouse. So tell us about the didgeridoo that you brought in. This is an authentic Australian didgeridoo. It's, it's an authentic didgeridoo. Um, they date back somewhere I've read different accounts, forty to 50,000 years. Um, the first instrument uh, that we know of, even before drums, they all, it was also uh, the first medical instrument we know of because they used them for sound wave therapy because, they, as you know, they do vibrate heavily. They would play them over broken bones. They're mostly made out of um, eucalyptus wood, which is primarily uh, Australian wood. Nowadays, they make them out of all kinds of things, from PVC to cardboard to carbon fiber. Well, now, yours was actually uh, hollowed out by termites. Correct. Originally, they were, and they had a, uh, a beeswax mouthpiece on them. Well, and it was beautifully decorated. Yeah, it was painted by uh, an Aboriginal artist. The one, I believe it was the same artist that actually made the didgeridoo. And I have several of his didgeridoos, actually. Okay, 30 flutes. How many didgeridoos? Probably five or six. Okay. I have one from Brown County. It's set in, 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 the, in the newer version of Mountain Made Music for several years. And I recognized it was really a quality instrument. And I would go in there and it never sold. And one day I went in there and, and I, I offered the guy a, a price for it because it was probably worth four or five hundred dollars. And uh, I said, "Would you take one hundred and fifty bucks for it?" And he said, "Yes." And I bought it. Wow! Nice, <laughs> nice. Well, it pays to have the right interest at the right moment. Then it does. Yeah. You you mentioned that you played at different events, uh, uh, the Idol George, the Children's Museum in Indianapolis. Yeah, a lot of museums, the Historical Society of Indianapolis did a lot of weddings at the Idle Jorg, did a lot of public service for the Idle Jorg Museum. Did a, they used to have a lot of conventions there, and uh, we would play for, for some of those through IU. It was uh, their programs that they were uh, setting up there, and, and they would contract with us to play there as well. Well, just for the record, uh, because our listeners are going to hear this music, you are not a Native American. No, I'm actually, I uh, just had my DNA done, as a matter of yeah. fact. I am 98% European and uh, 1% to 3% Jewish. Well, that's the remarkable thing that we can all do now. So let's talk about the flute again. Um, you were talking about the various scales that the flutes come in, and chromatic scale versus the pentatonic scale. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Actually, it is basically a pentatonic scale. However... Um, the modern one is. The modern one is, yes. yes. Originally, they, they were tuned to themselves. And um, the reason they, they actually changed it, it was very close to, the, to a, a pentatonic keyed scale. The reason they did that is so you could play with modern instruments. But that whole process of the Native American flute was almost uh, became uh, extinct because we forced the Native Americans onto reservations and they weren't allowed to play their flutes. And a, a guy by the name, I wonder to say his name was Sonny Nevaquaya, a, a Native American fella, kind of brought that back. And the Native Americans used to play them in secret until probably they didn't, you didn't even hear the Native American flutes probably until the 1950s sometimes again. That's incredible. Now, of, of all the things I've heard about, uh, you know, the 
um, the, the native schools and all these different things that they did to the culture, I didn't understand that they suppressed their music as well. Yes, they cut their hair and suppressed their music. All of their culture they tried to suppress. Mm. Yeah, let's talk sound about that, uh, the drum that you were using, the sound effects and all of that. What's that thing called? That is called a Korg wave drum. And this is the uh, world drum version, which they have a lot of Middle, Middle Eastern sounds on there, old world sounding type of drums like djembe's and things like that. Sound effects, there are over 300 sounds I believe I can get out of that. So Patrick, you've, uh, obviously your music has evolved since 1995 in your fir- very first flute purchase. Uh, at what point did you start adding all of these modern sound effects? And Probably about five years later, I, I uh, used to beg places like Borders Bookstore to let me play. Um, a lot of bookstores that are now gone, uh, Barnes and & Nobles, and they... I started getting bored with just doing the same thing over and over, and so I started investigating other ancient instruments, and, and it just went from there. And I was kind of fascinated by the didgeridoo, and there's really no one to teach you, so um, I just started tinkering with it and taught myself how to circular breathe. That's amazing to me. Um, so, But the blending, I mean, you've got these ancient instruments that you are also blending all of this high-tech stuff in. Well, I, I play... In a, in a Native American ensemble titled Shalombish. And two of them, the members, are um, professional musicians. Um, and they played all of the more modern instruments as well as they play these instruments. And if anyone was ever interested, uh, for probably 17 years, I believe, uh, we meet once a month, usually the third Sunday of the month, at um, the Crystal DeHaan Center. In, at the University of Indianapolis, and it's free. Uh, anybody can come, and we show people how to play these, and they can perform or bring whatever instruments they want, do whatever they want to do. So do you have a website? I have, I have a website called www.shalombish, and it's spelled S-H-I-L-O-M-B-I-S-H.com, and that's for the ensemble that I play in. It's a, a four-member ensemble. And then if you want to learn how to play the Native American flutes, you can go to indianaflutecircle.com, all run together, lowercase, and it gives the dates and the time when the flute circle meets. Excellent. So if you want to listen to some of this, this is how you can find out when and where. Yes. Excellent. Well, you're a remarkable one-man band, and it's just been a spectacular evening of listening to your music. And it I really hope that you get more chances to play because I would like to hear you some more. Well, thank you. Jim Eagleman reporting for another segment of Nature News for WFHB-FM Radio, the Brown County Hour. A bit of red, as seen on many woodpeckers in the woods or at the feeder, seems to be a bit brighter than usual now that snow cover is common in our Brown County woods. 
If you feed birds in the winter, many woodpeckers can be viewed and recognized now, and the bright red color usually seen on the head or back helps identify the males of this interesting family. In Brown County, we can expect to see seven of the 22 species that are found in North America. They are the downy and hairy woodpeckers, probably the most common, the red-headed and the red-bellied, the northern flicker, the yellow-bellied sapsucker, and of course the big pileated. My guess is all seven will frequent our feeders this winter, so be ready with the binoculars to add them to your bird list. And the males, as told from females, will have a red patch on the back of the head, like the hairy and downy, more red on the head and neck, like the red-bellied, and a red mustache on the pileated. These field marks will require some close scrutiny, and this is the enjoyment and much of the challenge that confronts all birders. Female birds, as we know, are less brightly colored. Sizes vary from the downy, the smallest at maybe six and a half inches in length, to the pileated at 16.5 inches in length. This crow-sized woodpecker has a wingspan of 29 inches. You can go out into the woods at nearly any season of the year and see these solitary woodpeckers busily inspecting rotten trees, prying away dead bark, and chipping into soft dead wood with their bills. They do not make as much noise when feeding like this in the winter woods as compared to their loud pecking in spring when mating occurs. As territories are established and to find a mate, pounding on a tree becomes a way of announcement. The louder, the better, and this may be why they choose to peck on gutters, downspouts, flashing around chimneys, or a hollow tree. Woodpeckers make holes, used in nesting, food search, or to enlarge the cavity, but this creates some engineering challenge. Drilling a hole into a tree is only one part of the problem to extract tasty treats from solid wood. You also have to reach inside the hole to pluck the reluctant insects out. Woodpeckers solve this problem nicely with the help of a mouth harpoon. That is what their tongues are like, pointed, stiff, and barbed. Sapsuckers have little bristles instead of barbs on the ends of their tongues. The bristles trap air spaces that act like capillary sponges and soak up the sap. Look for their holes in rows, sometimes many rows, on the barks of maple, oak, and aspen trees. Woodpecker tongues can be quite long, longer than the actual bill. Its muscular roots start at the base of the bill and circle the back of the skull, fuse on top of the head, and end up sheathed in the right nostril. Next time you get a chance to look at a road-killed woodpecker, check out its tongue. I did this once with a group of students who, fortunately, were as much into it as I was. I recall feeling the sharp tip of the tongue protruding from the gaping bill. We inspected this unusual mechanism and speculated the food search was still a marvelous thing. We also tried to imagine what it must be like to feel your whole head spring into life every time you stick out your tongue. On a trip a few springs ago, I joined my naturalist buddies on a search in Arkansas for the elusive and now assumed to be extinct ivory-billed woodpecker. A friend in our group who works for the Wild Birds Unlimited Bird Store knew a photographer who had done some extensive searches for the bird around Brinkley, Arkansas. In camel-covered kayaks and canoes, we drifted into the Singer tract of old-growth flooded timber where some encouraging pictures of the bird were taken earlier, but to no avail. Still, what a thrill to think that some Hoosiers from Indiana would be able to say they confirmed the sighting of this very large and rare woodpecker. We think it's still out there. Can other birds and other critters use woodpecker holes? Yes, and with frigid weather nights now upon us, having a small enclosed space can be of a great help to a cold nuthatch or chickadee that can retain some body heat, 
that would otherwise be lost if exposed. And large woodpecker cavities are also used by screech owls, flying squirrels, snakes, and raccoons. Look for this busy and interesting family of birds this winter in your part of the Brown County woods. Suet from the butcher hung in a bag is sure to attract them. We use a mesh potato bag and remove it by the time warm spring weather returns. Happy birding. Thanks for listening. Jim Eagleman reporting for Nature News, WFHB-FM, the Brown County Hour. we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, 
and online at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB and the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. Segment two begins with Vera Grubb's interview with local artist Sally Baldwin. Jeff Tryon shares a timely essay about firewood. The seed lady, Tori Berkmeyer, will give us an update on the seed exchange project. We'll share a poem from Carol Marks. The segment will close with some more flute music from Patrick Nylander. Hello. This is Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour for WFHB. I'm in Sally Baldwin's shop, and I'm looking for her. Sally, where are you? Back here. <laughs> Straighten up some yarn. <laughs> I've come in to interview Sally, and it seems to me that you are one of the earliest artist craftsperson to land in Brown County. How did that come about? Well, there were several that came before me in, in the early 70s. Really? I didn't arrive here until 1983. Uh -huh. But my husband, we were living in Murfreesboro, Illinois, and my husband had a couple of friends from high school that lived here. And we had been looking for a small farm in southern Illinois, and we just couldn't find what we were looking for. So he drove over one weekend and came back and said, Sally, we got to move there. There's craftspeople there, there's log cabins, forest, it's just beautiful. And I says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. So I was coming here to make a delivery of rugs for a shop called Country Mouse Weaving Shop, owned by Joanne Hab. So I brought rugs with me, and um, yeah, we I fell in love with it too. So a month later, we had found a place and oh, moved from Southern Illinois. That went quickly. It did, yes. So you've been weaving even longer than before Brown County. Yes, I learned to weave in Minnesota in 73, but I didn't really start as a business until 1980 in Murfreesboro, Carbondale, Illinois. How did you embellish your weaving to, to the extent that it's considered an art? Uh, well, when I started out, I was using uh, rags. I, I only did rag rugs, and I would go to flea markets, yard sales, Goodwills, things like that to find material to weave with. And, and that, that it, that's very artistic to do rag rugs. But then I um, had a shop with Carol Adamson, oh. Brown County Weavers. We yeah. started in 1988. And she was doing some clothing. And Joanne Hab was also doing clothing. And I decided to start weaving clothing on my rug loom, which is a little more difficult <laughs> versus a, a clothing loom. And just found I just really enjoyed making jackets and sweaters and, you know, different types of pieces that people could use to keep them warm. And you spin and dye as well. I do. Yes, in 1997, I decided to write a book called Natural Dyeing in Yellowwood Forest. 
and all of the dye books that I had collected over the years, they were all natural dyeing books, but they all called for using chemicals. So that seemed kind of odd to me. Paradox. So, yes. So I decided to uh, do a lot of research on plants that had tannic acid in them naturally, or you could use vinegar or alum. And then I um, discovered creatures. I had <laughs> angora rabbits for a couple of years, and I, I now have two angora goats, a black one and a white one. So in regards to the beginning, how would you describe the prevalent culture here in Brown County? Oh boy, you know what? We moved here before the big boom. There were maybe 80 shops here, so a lot of boom happened in probably the late 80s. We definitely need more craftspeople. We need young people to start having shops and creating and learning a, a skill and art. You are a committed social activist. How are you mm. able to balance that with your craft and your business concern? Anyone listening to this has ever walked by Brown County Weavery, you probably know what my politics are <laughs> since they're <laughs> plastered on the window. So, but the things that I'm really concerned about are the environment and uh, I'm a pacifist, so I'm totally against all wars. I, I just put it out and hope I affect someone. I am a member of the Brown County Craft Gallery and have been since 1984, but we have a website, the Brown County Craft Gallery, and you can see all of the members work on our website. And where is the retail store for the gallery? It's at 56 West Main Street. I'm just really concerned about all the logging that's going on right now. And I know WFHB, you know, the Brown County Hour has, has put a lot of emphasis on that, and I'm really glad for that. This has been Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour for WFHB, talking to Sally Baldwin. My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. Scoring firewood. As the frigid curtain of the polar vortex gut punches the Midwest, the regular suppliers start to dry up, and it becomes increasingly difficult to locate a good rick of firewood. You try all the usual places, slabwood down at the local sawmill, the old store down the road, that house in Fruitdale with the occasional stack of wood out front, nothing doing. As your on-hand supply of combustibles dwindles and the thermometer plunges, you become more and more keenly interested in the machinations of the local wood-burning subculture. Everyone you meet or talk to, you query and prod about where the good wood might be and how much it might cost. Your eye is distracted when you drive past a particularly fine-looking pile of firewood. Now that's a good-looking rick of wood. 
You could check the spot market in the ad section of the local birdcage liner, but I'm telling you right now, without even looking, prices will be premium, like 65 bucks a rick or vapors, even more. That price, you might as well go over to Blooming Foods and get the organic stuff. It's real nice wood, range-fed, humanely harvested, and fairly traded, and they always have it on hand, but pricey, pricey. That's the high-end product for the upper-crust east-side elites and orthodox hippies who just have a few logs in the fire for the fun of it. They aren't burning wood for heat in some drafty old historical house in the depths of the Brown County woods. It's ironic, really, searching for wood in the midst of this enormous, complex, remarkably diverse climax hardwood forest in which you live. In particular, the remarkable variety of kinds of trees means that firewood gatherers who tend to be end-users cutting up tops from timbering or buying up leftovers from pallet making or board sawing, encounter a delightful cornucopia of combustible cellulose. You get a lot of oak, white oak, and the preferred red oak, but it could be anything. Maple, hickory, beech, birch, sycamore, black cherry, black walnut, red cedar, poplar, even dogwood, redbud, pine, you name it. Given the abundant diversity of hardwoods available locally, a certain superior attitude develops amongst the wood-burning classes. People become better informed through experience and develop firm opinions about what sort of wood is best suited for heating the homestead. I mean, there's firewood, and then there's firewood. When I unexpectedly ran low after a stretch of particularly nasty weather recently, I texted my brother's wood provider to see if he had anything available. That's right. He does business only by text. I'm using a cell phone to order firewood. 18th century meets the 21st century. I've got loads of wood stacked, came the return text. It's a mix of beech, maple, and a small amount of oak. I can get you better quality oak on Wednesday. So, you want the regular old stuff now, or wait a couple of days for, you know, the good stuff? Connoisseurs disagree about what the absolute best firewood is. Some say ash holds the fire longer, gives off more heat, and makes better coals. Most people are perfectly happy with a good straight-grained red oak. I'd say a well-seasoned hickory is the hottest-burning, commonly-used firewood. Hedge apple, also known as Osage orange, is held in high esteem by us firewood freaks. But everyone agrees there's no heat like wood heat. It warms the bones. There are drawbacks. It tends to dry you out, and it's messy. And then there is the actual physical challenge of wrestling with it. The hauling, the carrying, stacking, splitting, carrying, burning. Figure in the chainsawing before and the ash hauling at the end of it all, and it adds up to quite a bit of physical labor one way and another. Low back pain is the ever-present occupational hazard of the wood-burning set. You begin the season all full of vim and vigor, wood pile neatly stacked, kindling box full to overflowing, axe, maul, and wedges sharpened and standing at the ready. And for those first few crisp autumn days, Getting the wood is actually kind of fun. You enjoy the little sessions of physical activity in the afternoon sun. But as the wood-getting season wears on through the holidays and then plunges into the depths of the heartless, soul-crunching cold and the endless gray days stretch on and on, the carrying and the chopping and the fetching and the cleaning up after and the keeping the fire all start to take their toll. As we get on in years, we are perhaps not as fit and toned as we once were, we find ourselves more susceptible to life's little aches and pains, and sometimes one day of overdoing can lead to a month of debilitating low back pain, a condition of abiding misery. 
So I texted my new wood connection. Could he deliver a load for me instead of me coming to get it because I had tweaked my back a little bit? Sure, he texted back, but not today. Have to go see the chiropractor. And so we limp on toward spring, huddled around our cast iron idols, feeding them slavishly, sending fragrant plumes of the finest hardwoods heavenward from our log cabin chimneys. One rick more, maybe two, and then surely warm weather will arrive in my brown county. Hey, this is Tori Berkmeyer. I'm Brown County Hours Seed Lady. I'm here to talk a little bit about Seed Brown County and some of the local food projects that we have. Our mission is to help our community save and share seeds. Pretty simple. With this concept, it helps to build on more local food, and we see more local food diversity in our markets. I was actually here on the Brown County Radio Hour to share a little bit about an event we had in October. It was a seed swap event, and it was a roaring success. We had people come from all over, including Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, as well as lots of Brown County residents. So we found that to be an awesome success and that people were coming to share seeds and get together and talk stories about what's been grown in these hills in Brown County. A grower came to our event, and he was from Bristol, Indiana, and he brought over 55 varieties of all these heirloom corns, grains, beans, and just many different beautiful-looking seeds. And the best part is that they were actually grown right here in Indiana, and then they were donated to Seed Brown County. So now we have this wonderful stock of seeds in which we need people to grow them out. So I'm here to ask you, the community members, to join in our food project and come to learn about how you might get your hot little hands on some of these beautiful gems. As long as you can come to our events, we have uh, seed swaps and different things planned throughout the rest of 2017. This includes seed swap in the spring. We have grower trainings where we're teaching community members how to grow out those seeds, how to harvest them, how to eat them, and how to prepare the food that's grown. There's lots of fun things that we've got on the calendar. Something else that I really wanted to talk about is that this seed project that we have started when we received a donation from a iconic Brown County man named Jack Weddle. So we have all these seeds from this man who was a corn breeder here in the county. The great thing about Jack Weddle and his seeds and actually the stories behind them is that the seeds that we had received of Jack's, we displayed them at this swap and they were valued and cherished. Some people picked up some of these brown gem corns that he used to grow, and now his corn seeds will be tested, germinated, and they're going to be shared by different plant breeder projects here in the U.S. So we thought that was really awesome to get Brown County and some of the seeds that have been grown here on the map. So if you'd like some more information to learn about how to get involved, just know that you can attend our events and you can learn about the events on our Facebook page. Just type in Seed Brown County onto your Facebook browser and you'll see a list of events where we are sharing our seeds. There's no experience required. There's no land required because we feel that this project includes all of us. We all eat. If you want to get involved, go ahead and check us out on the web at seedbrowncounty.org or just stay tuned to Brown County's Hour and listen for The Seed Lady, and I'll be filling you in on more local food projects and things that relate to us here in Brown County. This is Tori Berkmeyer signing off. <laughs> Seed you later. This is Carol Marks, and this poem is called Health and Safety. In grade school, we had three recesses a day, morning recess, lunch recess, afternoon recess. We were at school from 8 till 3. 
At recess, as soon as we hit the door at the end of the hall, we ran screaming onto the playground. We were all wearing red ball jets. The playground equipment was very, very big. The slide was five times the height of a six-year-old. Every year, someone or other would lose his balance and fall off the top and break his collarbone. The swings were enormous, three feet across and made of heavy lumber clad with silver metal. Long, long chains that smelled sour and your hair could get caught in them. We would swing and pump and swing and pump and swing and pump and then leap out flying through space hoping to hit the grassy area just beyond the blacktop. One of the merry-go-rounds had seats like usual but a handlebar across from each seat. We all pulled and pushed on the bars. They were attached to the machinery in the middle making the merry-go-round go faster and faster and faster. Falling off this contraption was no joke. When the weather changes abruptly I still feel a twinge. I can't remember how the witch's hat worked. It was a big cone-shaped structure of metal pipes with seats around the bottom. At the apex, it was attached to the top of a pole. I think it would spin and swing, but I'm not sure. I don't believe I ever had the nerve. In the background, on the blacktop, people played foursquare and hopscotch drawn with yellow chalk stolen from the classroom and jump rope in groups with extravagantly long, hairy ropes from the gym and Chinese jump rope, a circle of elastic eight feet long. If we still had time after that, we played Red Rover. Hot and breathless, we went back inside when the bell rang to wooden floored rooms with open windows to learn the location of the Sudan and the phases of the moon.
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB and the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. Our final segment begins with a guitar story from Nathan Dillon. Dave Seastrom shares his essay about the winter solstice. Rick Fettig gives us his reflections on the new year, and we'll hear Patrick Nylander's performance on the didgeridoo. Welcome to This Old Guitar, where we learn about the instruments that inspire local musicians and the stories behind them. In tonight's edition, we hear from Nathan Dillon of the Acre Brothers and his vintage Silvertone guitar. This is Nathan Dillon with a guitar story. The very first guitar that I ever got was a 1964 Sears Silvertone Hornet, which is an electric guitar that's a knockoff of a Fender guitar. It was made by Dan Electro, probably in New Jersey. It's got lipstick tube pickups in it, which are a particularly enjoyable kind of pickup, especially for players of slide guitar. This guitar is the guitar that I learned to play on. It's how I learned to play all my Led Zeppelin licks. It's what I took to my first guitar lessons. Um, I've had other guitars since, but I would never, ever part with my Silvertone Hornet. For many, many years now, I've played a number of different guitars in public and on recordings, uh, primarily a Fender Telecaster, which is uh, often associated with uh, rockabilly music, country music, and certain kinds of rock and roll. But after I had made my first EP with the Acre Brothers, upon listening to the Telecaster on all of these tracks, I realized that something was missing. And I started searching again for tone, which is something that guitar players do. Guitar players are always looking for their tone. It's like a fingerprint, but a sonic one. After months and months of re-recording guitar tracks at Farm Fresh Studios to get the sound right, I was one day playing very, very, very loudly in my living room while my family was away. I had my 1964 Silvertone Hornet out plugged in and loud, and I realized that the tone that I had been looking for for so long, for most of my adult life, had been there all along in those lipstick tubes, and I've now come full circle and only play the first guitar that I ever received, which was my father's guitar, 
and uh, I don't think I'll ever play another one. That's the one for me. Here in Brown County, we're deep in the heart of the darkest time of the year. The world has just crossed over the winter solstice, and from here on out, every day will gather more light until we reach the zenith on the summer solstice in June. It may seem like an impossibly long time to wait for summer, and it is, but only if you look at it this way. In the not-so-distant past, Brown County was inaccessible during the winter. Our terrain is too steep, and before the roads were paved, they were hopelessly mired in mud. Even after the automobile arrived, the best way to get from here to there was by horse. Riding a horse was much better than riding in an early automobile because a horse is warm, and sitting on one kept you that way. Not so with a Model T. Aside from a blanket, you were on your own. We had an icy winter storm the other day, and I was reminded that nature is often more powerful than technology. As I was driving to town, the roads were so icy that several cars were in the ditch. When I got to town, I heard that another semi had jackknifed on Schooner Hill and traffic was backed up for hours. Those of us who live here, these are regular occurrences. Four-wheel drive is standard on many of our vehicles, and it's a wonderful tool, but it can only help you go and offers no benefit when you need to slow down and stop. Horses had no problem negotiating our winter roads, especially when they were muddy. If a horse needed to slow down or stop, they did so without much effort. Traversing the mud was slow going, but a good horse could easily manage the situation, and this meant that you reliably got to where you needed to go. Today, many of our houses have furnaces, just like the city folks do. This is a great convenience, and once the thermostat is set, you can sit back in relative comfort, that is, until the power goes out and then you're cold. Likewise, most of us have refrigerators full of food. When we're hungry, we can pull something out and throw it on the stove, and dinner's on its way. Until recently, life wasn't that easy in Brown County, especially in the winter. But in many ways, the ability to stay warm and feed ourselves was more assured. The labor involved was more intense, but those who did for themselves had what it takes to get by on hand. A big pile of firewood guarantees a winter's worth of warmth, and a larder full of canned goods keeps starvation away. These necessities were provided by the hard work of the individual and represented careful planning. In order to live here, you had to have these skills, or you had to have something you could trade to those who did. Most folks did for themselves because they had to. While we may possess all of the modern luxuries, our forested and hilly terrain, combined with our remoteness, places us on the edge of civilization. There are distinct advantages to this, and that's why many of us live here. But all of these modern conveniences come to us from spindly little wires suspended from wooden poles that run through the middle of the forest. Wind and ice often take these wires down, and in an instant, we're plunged into the 19th century. This is when it pays to have a foot in both centuries. Many of us have acquired what some might consider to be old-time skills. For me, it's all part of living here. In my mind, it's about being connected to the land rather than being a survivalist. 
Cultivating our ancestral skills is not just a connection to our past. It's a way to blend modern technology with what it takes to get by when an ice storm takes your power out. She's been gone many years now, but I'm remembering something my grandma said. She was visiting us up on the ridge, and after looking around, she asked me why I wanted to live in the past. I assured her that what I'm seeking is not to live in the past. It's about living in nature and still being connected to the 21st century. In other words, the best of both worlds. Years ago, my father asked me to bring some firewood for our holiday celebration. The clubhouse and their condo had a fireplace, and everyone loved the idea of a crackling fire burning in the background. I carried in a couple of loads and quickly lit a one-match fire. My aunt was watching as I did this, and she remarked that she recently attended a party where several captains of industry took turns trying to light the fire, and none were able to. The thought occurred to me that the ability to make fire was the first big leap for humankind, and no matter how sophisticated we think we are, losing this ability takes us back to the Stone Age. Here we are at the dawn of a brand new year. There's much uncertainty in the world right now, and it's worth thinking about our place in history. In my view, nature is eternal, and finding our place in nature, even in a big city, makes us all the more connected. Here is my holiday wish. Let's make peace with the earth and with each other, and we'll all live to see another year on our beautiful planet. Happy New Year, everyone. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. 2016 has been an unusual year. We're still dealing with an 18-month presidential election. The weather has been all over the place. People are starving and dying in many parts of the world. Black lives, Indian lives, police lives, and all the rest of us. We might ask ourselves, what really does matter? As another new year begins, we're all encouraged to make our New Year's revolutions. That's right, there's two sides to that corn. Resolution and revolution. Out with the old and in with the new. Revolt against the old you that encumbers your progress in life. Abandon fear in your life. Decisions made based on fear are futile. Cast off dead weight. The things and thoughts that aren't productive, they just drag you down and slow down your efficiency and productiveness in life. On and on. Whatever your burdens are, cast them aside. Then, the resolve. Be resolute to put on the new you, the real you, the bold you, the confident you. There's only one you in the universe, and you're the only one who sees and understands this crazy world the way you do. Your insight and contributions add to our progress in humanity. An unknown quote. Call me crazy, but I love to see people happy and succeeding. Life is a journey, not a competition. The old school teeter-totter comes to mind. It's a long plank with carved out seats and handles on each end. The plank straddles a bar that acts as a fulcrum. If we were to walk up the downside of the plank, we would come to the center and could find the balancing point where the plank could be stabilized in a horizontal position. The turning of the new year can be a fulcrum in our lives. No matter which side of the plank we choose, it's all downhill from this point. That's a bit optimistic. No one expects life to be all downhill and easy.
But with a renewed and revised attitude toward life, the real you can blossom into fruition. With all the turmoil in the world these days, my admonition is to love the one you're with. Be courteous to others in the checkout line. Let drivers out in the heavy traffic. Smile at the lady entering the grocery store with her walker. Be respectful and cooperative when in groups. We all have a circle of friends and influences and people we come into contact with every day. Just be kind. Be an example. And let's see if we can't stimulate a ripple effect throughout society. Make somebody's day. Love the one you're with. Before we close the show, the crew of the Brown County Hour would like to take a couple minutes to share a season's greeting. This is the first time our show has actually aired on New Year's Day, and we'd be remiss if we let this auspicious moment pass without mention. This has been a transitional year for all of us, and the Brown County Hour has seen its share of changes as well. 
In July, we celebrated being on the air for six years, and we said goodbye to our longtime producer, Jeff Foster, who was with the show from the beginning. His guiding hand can be heard in all of those episodes, and we can never thank him enough for all of his hard work. When Jeff decided to leave the show, he recruited Chuck Wills to be his replacement. This thoughtful act has not only brought his wonderful presence to the crew, it's changed the direction of the show in ways we couldn't have imagined. Chuck is a fun and creative person to work with, and we think you can hear that in the show. It's a real privilege to come to you every month as we share local music and conversations with people who make Brown County what it is. We learned a lot about this interesting place we live in from the stories people tell, and we're delighted to bring them to you throughout the year. We feel that Brown County Hour is an important voice in our community. This place isn't quite like any other, and it's great to be able to share a glimpse of who we are and what we're doing. We would like to thank the Brown County History Center for their generosity and support and for the beautiful studio where we record our show every month. We would also like to thank community-powered volunteer radio and all the good folks at WFHB, without whom we wouldn't be here. But most of all, we'd like to thank you, the listener. On behalf of the entire crew, we'd like to wish you... Happy New Year! Thanks for tuning in to episode 58 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour, coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.